0: Part of our culture's problem is we don't actually care who Jesus actually is. We just want God to be somebody that comes alongside of us the way we want him to come alongside of us. But by and large, our nation has fashioned for itself a Jesus in their own image. But we are looking at Matthew as we can, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you can look at those biographical records and see what the life of Jesus actually looked like. What did he actually do? Why did he actually come? Matthew, Mark, and Luke, look at those for an intense study on the life of Christ, how he acted, what his priorities were, what he did on the cross. Look to John to see kind of more of the why behind it all. That's one of the things that distinguishes the book of John from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is that John digs more into the theology of it, of Christ's life. Here we are in Matthew, chapter 9. We're going to be starting in verse, in verse 27. In Matthew, chapter 9, verse 27, Matthew writes... And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district, and as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who was mute was brought to him. and when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, "Never was anything like this seen in Israel." But the Pharisees said, "He casts out demons, or casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let us pray and look to the Lord's guidance as we dig into this passage of Jesus. Lord, I thank you that you cared enough. Being a transcendent God who reigns high above all things, who could remain in secret if you chose to, who could just send down your, the lightning of your wrath upon mankind without us even knowing why, you have every right to do those things. For you are untouchable. Your Our opinions of you don't matter. Our opinions of what you do and why you do things, they They do not sway you. They do not touch you. You are not obligated to us. For you are God, and we are not. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. And if you chose to uncreate or unsustain anything, you could do so and be completely just in doing so because you were God. And we have nothing to say about it. But Lord, we stand here in humility, thanking you that you have reached, in all the power that you could wield, you have used your power to save, our, to save us. You have used your power to have mercy upon us. You have chosen to give us a book of holy scriptures to know you as you would like to be known by us. You have used your great power to share goodness with us. And that we could enter into your goodness And Lord, may we only share your humility. For you have no obligation to us, yet you serve us. And you have served us in mighty ways, and in a mighty way in particular, in making it possible for all of our sins that are worthy of your wrath to be cleaned away, to be purified. And Lord, may we know this Jesus better, May your spirit open our eyes to see the real Jesus. And Lord, as our wills are very strong against you, our wills are often very much held in our own, for our own sufficiency, for our own goodness to ourselves. Lord, I pray that you would sway us, that you would give us the will of the spirit that we may enter into your mission, that we may enter into your passion, that we may enter into your spirit and in your love. For as we see in the scriptures, that no one of their own will seeks after God. Lord, I pray that you would give us that will, that we might seek after you, that you may be found by us and that we might be your redeemed people and that we may be sanctified, that we may go forth in this world in power and in might by the Spirit, and may we go all the way singing praises to the Lord Jesus who made all of this possible. Help us to get to know Him better, as much as we can in in this earthly state, until that day comes when we will see Him face to face, and then we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. In the meantime, Lord, steer us on this raging ocean of life, in Jesus' name we pray, Amen. So, here we pick up the story of Jesus from last week, where last week we saw him healing a woman who had been suffering for 12 years from the same disease. He rose a dead girl, a dead 12 year old girl, from the dead, gave her life, and people are talking about Jesus and the things that he is doing, and now. Jesus passes from that situation, and he, come, he is approached by a couple of men who are suffering from blindness. Now even today, nobody can do anything about blindness. If you're born blind, or if you are blinded by some accident or something like that, there's not much anybody can do for you. There are medicines and treatments for a, a myriad of diseases and, and uh, physical um ailments, but blindness still remains one of those things that nobody can really do a whole lot about. And Jesus is approached. He says in verse 27, as Jesus passed from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud. Say they're, they're not following him in silence. They are coming after Jesus, crying aloud. When was the last time that you were so in need that you cried aloud to God. We are all so secretive. When we pray to God, we pray to God in silence, in our minds, in our spirits. And there's nothing wrong with that. The Lord hears us no matter how we come to him. But how have we been so grieved that we cried aloud? Jesus! And that's what these people are doing. Crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David And they didn't even present a request really. They didn't say come heal us from our blindness. They just said have mercy on us, son of David. Now this request still is of great importance. He said they call him son of David. Do you know what that is saying? that these two men, unlike many of the religious people who were well-versed in prophecy of what the Messiah was to look like and come as these two blind men, though they could not see, they could see in their spirits. They knew that this was the prophesied Messiah, the son of David, who was prophesied to come and pick up the kingdom of Israel as their Messiah and bring it to God. They saw this, even though they were blind and deemed as people who could not see. Yet they see more than many of the religious people who were supposed to be the people who could see these things, but they didn't. Because they were too wrapped up in themselves and in their own way of thinking and in their own religion But yet these two humble people saw. And you know what their sight caused them to approach Jesus with? A request for mercy. They started it out. Have mercy on us, son of David. The other part of this son of David statement is they recognized him as Lord and King and Sovereign. Because David was king. The great king of Israel from days past. And there was another king prophesied who would rise up and rule over the people of Israel and that would be the Messiah the coming king who would reign who would bring God's blessing back upon his people they saw him as king and therefore they cry out for mercy for the king has dominion over all his subjects and the king can only do can do whatever he wants he can look upon the weak and the miserable and turn them away because they aren't worth his time. That's what many kings and pharaohs of old have done. That's what our government can sometimes do. We're not going to talk about this. We're not going to look at these things because they're not worth our time. So these two blind men, they come and say, have mercy. We know we don't deserve your time or your power, but we know that you have the power We know that you are king. But also the request showed another understanding, another sight that these people had. That the religious people of their day did not have. The religious people of the day saw him as simply a ruler. A king who would sit on a throne and judge Israel, judge the nations, redeem the people from the surrounding nations from the oppression that they were receiving at a nationalistic level but their request was really seeking out Jesus to heal them they recognized that his power and authority was not just over the nation but over everything over the nation over their bodies <laughs> he had his sovereignty was in the heavens it was not just physical and nationalistic, it was spiritual. It was over every created thing, including their bodies. They had a well-rounded understanding from the prophecies of what the Messiah would be as the son of God come in power, not just not just national authority, but every authority known to man. So much so that they knew nobody could do anything about their blindness. They knew they had something that could not be healed. But yet they approached Jesus because they know he has the authority over their body. In verse 28, it says, when he entered the house, so so Jesus continues walking. He enters the house, the people follow him. The blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said to him, Yes, Lord. Simple. I mean, this transaction is simple. They haven't even asked him, said anything about their blindness. They haven't said anything about this. This is just very based off of implication. Not a whole lot of words are exchanged. And Jesus asks, do you believe that I am able to do this? He is not simply asking them if they saw him as a simple healer. He is asking like he was some sort of physician. He is asking them to express their full faith in him as God's Messiah. That he was not simply just there to rule and reign. Okay, so they approached him as the son of David. The son of David, the king, the prophesied king. But he, was, he is getting them to express their faith in him as the one who came to serve the needy, to serve the broken, the little people. Most of the teaching that these people were receiving from the temple and from the synagogues was concerning the messianic role of the restoration of Israel and the need of the people to return to keeping the law of Moses. It was all about the nation. It was all about works and the law of Moses. Obey. That was the role of the Messiah, to bring the people back to this. And the broken people, by and large, remained forgotten as an afterthought of the Messiah's mission. National, you know, big, powerful government executives, they don't usually care that much about the little, the homeless guy sitting on the street as they walk by. They have bigger, more important things. Just as in the story of the Good Samaritan, those big, those big important religious people walked right on by. Whereas the Samaritan, this reject, this Jewish reject, stopped and helped the man. The man who was broken. Jesus was becoming a reject concern by the religious people of his day. He stopped and kneeled by the broken people, the sick people, the little people that nobody else really cared about or had the power to do anything for. Don't get me wrong, not everybody hated the little people, but there were very few who actually had the power to do anything for them. And we've talked before that Jesus had both power authority and compassion to reach out and to help these people and he did it because that was big a big major part of the role of the Messiah so he is the prophesied son of David and more fully than that more fully than the religious teachers could understand he came to have mercy on those who needed mercy that was his role To give mercy to those who need mercy. Let's continue. He said, do you believe that I am able to do this? And they said, yes, Lord. They expressed their faith in the Messiah who is more than just a political leader. He was more than just a professor of the law. He has come to heal and to save. And he says in verse 29, Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. In verse 30, And their eyes were opened. And let's stop there for a second. According to your faith, be it done to you. So it is that the Lord certainly answers the prayers of faith. Of faith. The prayer that acknowledges Christ as both sovereign Lord and merciful servant to the broken. The faith that these two people had was a faith that recognized themselves as the little broken people, but yet the Messiah was such that he was both the great creator who put on human flesh to meet us in our context Right? How many of us have been taught that we need to go and meet God in his context? We need to rise up so that God will notice us. We need to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps so that we can, because we've all heard, God blesses those who bless themselves. We've got to rise up so that God will then recognize who we are and aid us in our need. Is that not contradictory to the entire concept of Mercy. Mercy that says, I'm going to have compassion on people who don't deserve it. I'm going to have compassion on those who don't deserve it. If we think we deserve for God to answer our prayers, then we're already starting off with a, with a, with a sandy foundation. If we think that just because of who we are and how much money we've given and how much we've done and how far we've come, now I deserve for God to answer my prayers then we're no longer coming and asking for mercy. We're coming and asking for our due. If we think, I've gone through so much, I deserve a little bit from God to kind of make up for everything that he let happen in my life. We're already rejecting our need for mercy. We are no longer viewing ourselves as the little people who need something from somebody that we don't deserve. The Messiah, the great Creator, who put on human flesh to meet us in our context. He has come to us because we can't come to Him. That's why He came to us, so that He could do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. And until we recognize that we can't do it for ourselves, we will not know Jesus. We will not know the real Jesus. A Jesus who came to give mercy, not to just pay paychecks for good work well done. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. It is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us. As you have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk. Ye in him. Is it not clear? Every prayer must start with an understanding that I don't deserve to be heard, but he hears me. Though God is the one to be feared, yet in Christ he can be approached By imperfect subjects, and those subjects know that his compassion will meet us. His compassion meets us. Who needs compassion? Who deserves pity? Those who have a need that they cannot provide for for themselves. Do you believe that you're pitiful, that you need pity, that you need God to pity you? Many of us will not receive help from people because we don't want their pity. We don't need your compassion because we're proud. We don't want to see ourselves as the little people. We want to be the strong people who take care of other people. Who, in a way, have some sort of dominion and authority because we're strong and mighty we will not see ourselves as the little people who are in need of God's compassion. God uplifts the, the, the humble. He puts down the proud. And perhaps that's why many of us don't really know much of God's presence. Because we are proud, whether we like to admit it or not. We think so much of who we have become and what we've made of ourselves... That we no longer see our need for mercy and the pity and the compassion of God. Because Jesus said, according to your faith, be it done to you. According to your faith, that starts with your need for mercy. If you don't see your need for mercy, then there's no need for faith. Because you're walking by sight and not by faith. It's one or the other, not both. according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. And this is something that we need to look at. Jesus said several times throughout the the Gospels (coughs) that when he would perform some miraculous wonder for somebody, heal somebody, something that he, he would tell people, don't tell other people about it. And while he never really gives a a clear reason for why he says these things, I think it's a safe deduction, and we're going to look at a couple passages here, to say that the reason why Jesus says, don't tell people about it, can be summarized by a couple of statements he makes in John chapter 2 and John chapter 7. Look at John chapter 2 real quick with me. John chapter 2. John chapter 2, verse 4. Now this is in the middle of a wedding. Remember that wedding where Jesus turned water into wine? We're not going to talk about the whole story, but just look at John chapter 2, verse 4. Okay. Well, it's just 1 through 4. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So Jesus' mommy, very proud of her son, she wants to kind of push Jesus to go out there and do something miraculous, do something wonderful because she knows what he's capable of. Jesus says, why are you asking me to do something about this? My time has not yet come. Now we see he goes ahead and turns water into wine and there's a You know, great, wonderful thing. But he says, my time has not yet come. Jesus' mother wanted him to kind of step into the limelight. Jesus says, it's not time for me to do that yet. It is not. And we need to understand. Well, before we get into that concept, John chapter 7. Go to John chapter 7. So this concept of my time has not yet come. We're going to see that again here in John chapter 7. Starting in verse 1. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go into Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, Jesus knew he came to die, right? So what's a big deal if he knew that the Jews were about to kill him? Now the, feast, now, the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. Again, there's people pushing Jesus to try to go into the limelight so that people can see all the wonderful power that Jesus has. Verse 4, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, because it, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After this, he remained In Galilee, but after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, said, How is it that this man has has learning when he has never studied? Good question. So Jesus answered him, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So in this passage, we see People are, there are some people who want Jesus to go out to get in the limelight so people can look at him, see all the marvelous things that he's doing. But then there's another group of people who want to kill him, who want to quench him, who want to crush him. And there's a big division in the nation concerning Jesus. But Jesus was not ready to be recognized by either party. Because his time had not yet come. Now he's the Messiah, Part of his purpose was to come and be the reigning king. And the side who wanted him to be the king, they were pushing him out. They wanted people to see his marvelous wonders. They wanted to see his great works, what he was capable of, so that the nation would accept him and exalt him as their king. I mean, remember this happened after the feeding of the 5,000? After the people were fed, a great multitude took him and they wanted to establish him as king. They wanted to put a crown on his head and make him rule over Israel. And Jesus... Departed from them. <clears throat> Excuse me. He departed from them. Because it was not time. And that was not the way. And on the other end. In this story. We see that there are people on the other side. Who wanted to kill Jesus. Because they didn't want him to be king. They wanted people to stop following him. So they wanted Jesus to just go away. And the only way they knew how to do that. Was to kill him. But it was not time yet for that either. Because. And this is something we need to see here. God is a master craftsman, those of you who have ever built something with your hands, you know that it takes time, it takes thought, and that you have multiple parts that you have to prepare in order to build whatever it is that you're building, whether it's a house, whether it's you know a, a deck, whether it's just whatever it is that you're building, there are multiple parts that all have to come together in order for this to be a functional item that you intended to build. Now, the craftsman will take a piece of wood, whittle it down, carve it with a sharp blade, and set it aside, and then go work on another piece. And then when it's time to put all the pieces together, then he'll put all the pieces together. But he's preparing all the individual parts ahead of time, so that when it's time to put everything together, then everything can come together in unison and work properly And at this point, it is not time for Jesus to be exalted as king. And it is not time for him to be crucified. There will come a time when all those things come together. But now is not that time. And just, I want you to realize that with your life, that God is not just a master craftsman with Jesus. He is a master craftsman with you. There are moving parts in God's plan where you look at that part in your life and you think, why in the world would God do that? That hurts. But we have to understand that that is not all of God's plan. That's part. He's a master craftsman. And there you may not see the full building for what he was crafting while you are alive. But one day you will see what he is building with all of your pain and suffering. It will happen. Because God is a master craftsman with you. We can only submit ourselves to that when we do as the scriptures say. We walk by faith. And not by sight because everything that we're looking at looks completely opposite of what we think about God. But we don't recognize that God's ways are high in the heavens. He has the blueprints in front of him, not in front of you. And we must humble ourselves before him as he is working. Things fall apart when we think, man, it, should, it would have brought more glory to God if those things stuck together. But they fall apart instead. But we have no idea what is going to bring God the most glory. He does, and he is working out those things. Because he is far more concerned about his glory and the good of his people than you are. And he has more compassion than you do, and he has more authority over it than you do. And he is working all of that together for his great purpose. And we must walk by faith and not by sight, for the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the holy is understanding. Not knowledge of the way life is understanding. Knowledge of the holy is understanding. We must come back here. And this is the same thing that's going on with Jesus. Everything is not, everything is not ready for all the parts to come together. That's why he is telling people over and over again, don't, don't spread it around because I don't want the multitudes to make me king before it is my time. Jesus has not quite yet accomplished what he has set out to do. He was not ready to be either made king Or to die by the hands of the Jews. In order to fulfill prophecy, the Romans had to put him upon a tree in order to fulfill prophecy. The Jews could not just take him out and stone him in order for Jesus to fulfill all prophecy. It wasn't time for that yet. And at this point, that's what would have happened. The Jews would have just taken him out and stoned him. But the scene had to continue to be built so that the time would come when he could fulfill all prophecy and leave no shadow of doubt that he was the Messiah, the fulfiller of all scripture. Now look at Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 32 again. Well, verse 31, But they went away and they spread his fame throughout all that district. I mean, what can you expect? How can you, especially if you were a blind man and all your family knew you were blind, and all your neighbors knew you were blind, all of a sudden you're not blind, how is that going to stay low-key? So is Jesus, what Jesus did, it made its way around. In verse 27, and Jesus passed on from there, to, Or sorry, verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. So we see another miracle that Jesus performed for somebody who, had, who was demon-possessed, and that demon was causing him to be mute. And the crowds marveled, saying never was anything like this ever seen in Israel but the Pharisees said he casts out demons by the prince of demons so again you see the two sides of the nation the disunity the disruption that's going on here never was one group says never was anything like this ever seen in Israel they were marveling in the presence of Christ these things were new and they were unexpected nobody's doing this stuff they turned everything what Jesus was doing was turning everything upside down Christ did not fit into the people's normal expectations for life or even how the Messiah was to come was to act. Only a few people really saw the Messiah for who he really was. The rest of the nations was still learning. some of them would continue to reject him. He was doing things that nobody thought he would do. He was supposed to stabilize the nation and stabilize the people's obedience to the law but he seemed to be putting pitiful effort into the nation, and into the law. Everybody thought he was to come and be the reigning king, conquer Rome, and bring people back to the law of Moses. But he was putting such little effort into any of that stuff. That's why all the learned people could not accept him, because they knew what the Messiah should be coming and doing. They knew what he should be doing. Jesus wasn't doing it. Instead, he was doing the things that nobody expected. He was doing the things that nobody else was doing or trying to do. Those who were willing to set aside their expectations were the ones who could actually see Christ as the Messiah and follow him into eternal life as the Jesus that that God intended him to be. The people who would not follow Jesus into eternal life followed after their expectations for their Messiah and ended up rejecting the real one who had actually come to them. In verse 34, he says, there's this other group of people that said, no, no, no. He's doing these things by the prince of demons, making any excuse possible to not accept that this was the actual real Messiah, regardless of all the prophecies he was fulfilling. Regardless of the fact that he wasn't actually doing any sin. He wasn't receiving payments. He wasn't doing it for money. He wasn't holding revival meetings and passing out KFC buckets, telling people to fill it with their money because of the great spectacle. No, he just wasn't doing what he was supposed to do. He could not possibly be the one that they were looking for. They refused to submit to the Christ that was actually before him. They had already set up a theological vision for the one that they should submit to And that wasn't this man. And they were going to extreme measures to to associate all the good that Jesus was doing with evil. And isn't that what the world is doing with Jesus? Efforts of unbelievers often revolve around talk about how all the evil in the world and how God must be evil to allow all this stuff to happen... They will point out their disappointment for how the Bible deals with slavery and women's and men's roles and homosexuality and various forms of Old Testament punishments, concluding therefore that the Bible is evil and irrelevant because it doesn't fit their expectations. Even though if their eyes were really open and they actually read the Bible, how many people have told us, I've read the Bible from cover to cover and all I see are mistakes and evil, but if they were really reading the Bible from cover to cover they would see, and if they were willing to accept the truth, no matter what they saw, they would see all the good they would would see all the relevance, they would see the good behind everything that is done, and not only that, but also the immeasurable goodness and the relevance of the Bible and the Christ that is given for all But some would simply rather dismiss Christ, associating him with evil and irrelevance, so as to abolish any real need to devote themselves to him. In Luke chapter 11, verse 20, Jesus says, But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If the people were to recognize that Jesus was doing this by the hand of God, then they would have to accept him as the Messiah, because it would all fit at that point. And then they would have to submit to him. That would be the logical conclusion that the people would have to come to. Otherwise, they would have to conclude that, yeah, I know that's the Messiah, but I'm not going to follow him, and therefore I accept my punishment of hell and wrath. People won't do that either. So they're caught at having to say Jesus was not the Messiah, the Bible is not true. It was simply a book. And We read Psalm 103 earlier, but it establishes the goodness of God given to those who recognize God as the sovereign Lord, the sovereign King. Following Christ in faith requires submission. And that is precisely what our world wants to avoid. We want to do that which is right in our own eyes. We want to believe what we want to believe. It's easier to just let what we see and experience determine what's true. Rather than having to submit to something that we have no control over. Sinclair Ferguson wrote just about 11 years ago. This is what has happened in popular evangelicalism. This is not, he's not even talking about the world. He's talking about the churches. Our Jesus is actually a reflection of ourselves. This is the constant danger when we don't simply open the scriptures and listen to their testimony about Jesus. We make a Jesus in our own image, usually domesticated, and sadly, much of that dominates the Christian media, and it seems to fall foul here. Any Jesus who isn't both Savior and Lord, sacrificial Lamb of God, and reigning King, cannot be the Jesus of the Gospels. And Jesus who does not call us to radical, sacrificial, and yes, painful discipleship, cannot be the real Jesus. But we have chosen, many of us, not necessarily, not necessarily rebuking any individual many Christians call themselves Christians because well they believe that God is love and they've determined what love means and what it can do and what it can't do and they've therefore dismissed a lot of the scriptures because they don't see how that fits into the love of God and it's more comfortable for us to just fashion a Jesus in our own image according to our own expectations and, if the, and when the real Jesus approaches us We cannot accept him because he doesn't meet our expectations. Therefore, we are left to our own devices. We become a Christian idolater. We aren't really worshiping Jesus. We're worshiping a form of Jesus that we have fashioned. We are Christian idolaters. That's possible. (laughs) To be a Christian idolater. And I like one of the words that Sinclair Ferguson used to describe what we do with Jesus. He uses the word we domesticate Jesus. What does it mean to domesticate something? We tame it. We alter its nature so that it's more controllable. Something that is wild, we take and we make unwild. Something that is out of our control, we take and we put it under our control. We alter the natural, unbound state of an animal and we give it boundaries. We remove something from its natural context and put it in our context for personal use. And that's what many of us have done with Jesus. We've altered his natural state so that that which is uncontrollable is now manageable and controllable. We have taken him out of the context of Scripture. And we have just determined who he is based off of our context of life. To make it more understandable. To allow ourselves to do what we feel we need to do while still feeling religious and Christian. We must return to the Jesus of the Bible. And that's how I started all of this. When we look to scriptures, we look to see the truth. We look to find the real Jesus. Many of us call ourselves Christians, but we've never actually even read a single gospel. We don't even know who in the world Jesus is, even though we call ourselves a Christian. What does the Bible say about counting the costs? Someone who goes to build a building is a fool if he doesn't sit down and think about how much this is going to cost. What's the reality around what's going on here? And then he goes and he goes and he goes and all of a sudden he hits an end because he can't afford to do anymore. And now there's a half-built building that nobody can use. And we, some of us are calling ourselves Christians and we refuse to even know who the real Jesus actually is. We haven't actually counted the cost. We don't even know who it is that we're claiming to follow. Because we've never actually looked and learned about who Jesus is. We've never actually introduced ourselves to Jesus. We just call ourselves Christians because that's kind of our community, Christian community, Republican state, the far west side of the Bible Belt. We're all Christians here, but how many of us actually know who Jesus is? We must return to the scriptures. We must look for him. We must learn of him and not just assume things that we would like to assume about Jesus. And that is why we're going through the book of Matthew, so that we as a church can look and learn from the real Jesus. The Jesus who does not always leave us comfortable. The one who doesn't always leave us feeling strong. He's a Jesus who leaves us knowing our need for mercy. So that we can actually rejoice in his compassion. Because he knows what's good for us. He's the master craftsman. He is the one putting all the parts together. And we have to trust him and we need to know him. Let us return to the scriptures and the truth that's here. Not just cultural assumptions about him. Lord, help us to know you better. Lord, give us insight by the spirit as far as who the real Jesus actually is. Give us humility to accept him when he he confronts us as he is. Lord, how can you turn our world upside down if all we're going to do is turn Jesus upside down when we don't like what we see? God, humble us. And Lord, may you bless us when we actually see the Jesus who, as he actually is. And as we come and we plead for mercy, Lord, hear our prayers for your compassion and for your mercy. And bless those who will humble themselves before you as the Son of David and the Great Messiah, the Healer and the Merciful, God who calls the poor, not the rich, according to this world. In Jesus' name, Amen.